Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We gather to worship Almighty God, to illumine the imagination by the beauty of God, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to warm the heart by the love of God, and to devote the will to the purposes of God. The liturgy, music, and homily are offered for our gathered congregation here at Marsh Chapel, for our radio congregation across New England at NPR WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe at WBUR.org. We invite your prayerful and material support, your written and emailed responses, your selections and choices of ministry service in our midst, and as the Spirit moves, come Sunday, your presence with us in worship. This is the day the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. As we are able, may we stand in the praise of God.
pray together. O Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Beloved, we begin our service of worship as those who are utterly human beings with a longing, a desire for a moment of refreshment, a spiritual shower, a time of contrition, compunction, lament, and confession. In historic tones, our choir guides us in our silence and our prayer in the singing of the Kyrie. As they do so, let us pray. grant us thy mercy. O God of peace, grant us thy peace. O God of pardon, grant us thy pardon. Amen. Beloved, if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 1 through 2, and 9 through 18. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyards bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal, and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
please join me in verses 33 through 40 of Psalm 119 responsively with the antiphon. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end. Give me understanding, that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your decrees and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Turn away the disgrace that I dread, for your ordinances are good. See, I have longed for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48. Glory to you. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. morning moment, one day within the great and everlasting day of divine love, one pause now to remember and hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, as the apostle pronounced, it is not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. We might summarize Matthew 5:39 in these words from 150 years ago. 
with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. If the roads are clear this cold season, and this season is a fine time to travel, if the roads are clear, in the mountains north and west, you may make it to Lake Placid, New York. Near there, you will find a most exotically named preaching assignment, a four-point Methodist charge, Owl's Head, Chasm Falls, Mountain View, and Wolf Pond. You might pass through the strangely frightening prison town of Danamora. I remember visiting near there the hunting lodge of a friend. He stood snow-spattered in his meadow, watching and listening to nature in her farthest reach, and said, I love it. It is so wild up here. Lake Placid itself seems like the top of the world, especially in the winter. Winter is our most visually beautiful season here in the north. We are, in fact, ice people. No bad thing. The world needs both fire and ice. So here is Lake Placid, and here is Mirror Lake, and here is the Olympic Pavilion, and here is the ski lift from which to view the grandeur of the mountains, the poverty of the North Country, the stark serenity of old man winter, in this season a colossus striding upon the earth. You are on top of the world, or at least as far up as we get around here. Before you go off to dinner or the hot tub, I propose a further little visit. Out behind the ski lift, a long way from the road, and not overly well marked, there is a gravesite. Trudge a few paces into the snow and take a look. And there, if you brush back the powder, you can make out the name and the dates. Under mountain shadows, hidden in the icebox of the north, covered at least half the year with a beautiful white snow blanket, there lies the body of John Brown, 1800 to 1859, whose flint-like personality, bent toward violence, and fiery rhetoric helped ignite the Civil War, which began 150 years ago. His is a fitting rough grave lost in the outback of the Empire State. He lies just about as far from the Mason-Dixon line as one can go and still stay within this country. Gardner Taylor once said that, if, that we have not allowed the greatest conflict, the greatest tragedy of our history as a people, the Civil War, to teach us as much as it might. 600,000 men lost their lives 150 years ago. 150 years is not that long ago. I can remember very sharply the events and remembrances of the 100th anniversary of the Civil War in the early and middle 1960s, a third of the way back. We have a shared history from well before and after 1861, and it is out of that long history that we pause for a moment this morning to listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 39. And while there are easier sentences which might tempt us here in this reading, we shall listen to the hardest, the hardest anyway for interpreters. Do not resist one who is evil. As today's reading reminds us, we are from 
and out of a deep, though intricately varied, ethical tradition that enshrines selfless love, Christocentric love, cruciform love as the cherished ideal of human behavior. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. We have in this chapel over some years tried to hear the beautiful chorus, the four-part harmony of the scripture in the gospels. So today, the flickering soprano melody, the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, teaching us to love, to love others, to love all, to love with malice toward none, yes, to love our enemies. The alto, the contralto struggling of the primitive church, waiting and waiting for the promised, expected, proximate return of the Lord and developing a missionary tract found here and in Luke 6 for use in teaching and evangelism. Ah, the tenor, Matthew, our gospel writer, who has collected and composed and waits too, waits long, substituting you must be perfect, that is, whole, complete, true, for Luke's earlier be merciful. And then the base stretching from the Mediterranean community of the first century to the Charles River gathering today of Marsh Chapel. Jesus, church, writer, legacy, soprano, alto, tenor, bass. If anyone smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Coat, cloak, one mile, two. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Again, we might with these verses stay with the heavy emphasis they clearly have on personal relationships where the ice is thicker and we are safer. For an individual, alone and with no responsibilities to others, there are many options for selfless self-sacrifice. But the harder question, and the spot on the pond where the ice gets thin, or at least thinner, is how far the principle can be applied to groups and especially political life. Our recognition that the dominant alto tenor voices of the early church and evangelist, expecting very soon the return of Christ, and hence shading this ethic as an interim ethic, helps, but it does not mute the soprano melody flickering there. Resist not. Here is a ringing question placed against the ethic of retaliation that dates back to Hammurabi and the Roman law and to Aeschylus and is epitomized in the Lex Talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And 539, thin ice, resist not. How shall we hear this verse? Especially, how shall we hear this verse in relation to the brief span of human history given to our keeping, yours and mine? Over 20 centuries, and speaking with unforgivable conciseness as one must in a 22-minute sermon, two basic understandings of war and peace have emerged in Christian thought. As you know, these roughly can be called the so-called pacifist and just war understandings. Pacifism preceded its sibling and infinitely extends to all times the interim ethic of the New Testament, which even here in Matthew, a late writing, 
expects that the coming of Christ will soon make moot our ethical dilemmas, and so tends to err on the side of quietism, or in the case of arms, pacifism. To him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Many utterly saintly Christian women and men have and do honor this understanding with their selfless commitment, including many in this congregation today. My own pulpit hero, Ernest Fremont Tittle, the best Methodist preacher of the 20th century, did so from his Chicago pulpit through the whole Second World War. Think about that for a minute. I did for more than a minute when I preached from that very pulpit last June. And while personally I have not been able to this date anyway to agree with him, I never compose a sermon on this topic without wondering and to some degree fearing what his judgment might be. The multiple theories of just war, or war as the least of all evil alternatives, have developed since the fourth century in the writing of St. Augustine. Here the command to be merciful, even as God is merciful, is understood tragically to include times when mercy for the lamb means armed opposition to the wolf. The New Testament apocalyptic frame and its interim ethic are honored to be sure, but supplemented with the historic experience of the church through the ages. Many, many utterly saintly Christian men and women have honored this understanding with their selfless commitment, including some present here today, including some enshrined, enshrined in stained glass here today, and including some who are not present because they gave their lives that others might live. Just war thought includes several serious caveats. We together need to know and recall these. We together need to know and recall these in five forms. A just cause and response to serious evil, a just intention for restoration of peace with justice, an absence of self-enrichment or desire for devastation, a use as an utterly last resort, a claim of legitimate authority, and a reasonable hope of success given the constraints of discrimination and proportionality usually understood as protection of non-combatants. Response, restoration, Restraint, last resort, common authority. Prayerfully, we each and we all will want to consider our own understanding, our own ethic, if you will, our own choice and choices between these two basic alternatives. But the careful listener this February of 2011 will want a thought or two about how together how, as those who influence culture together, we might positively and proactively sing the four-part chorus of love and live out Matthew 5, 38 and following. We could use some help here. At least I know I could. So we will pause for a moment to welcome a visitor to our service. The scripture admonishes us to welcome visitors. <coughs> welcome. You will find him to my right, down the west side of the aisle of the chapel. 
He is standing alone, and he has been with us before. Actually, his worship attendance has been perfect for 60 years, a far better record than he had in life. For he is enshrined in one of our conic stained glass windows, one of the many novel choices the fourth president of Boston University, Daniel Marsh, made in designing our chapel. Abraham Lincoln may be able to offer us some assistance today on President's Weekend. A year before John Brown entered his post-retirement home in Lake Placid in the fall of 1858, two men as different as life and death stood beside each other on the debate platforms in Illinois. To the right was the carefully groomed, smooth-speaking, dapperly-dressed Senator Stephen Douglas. To his left, looking like a bumpkin, stood a gangly, homely man, overly tall and saddled with a high-pitched, irritating voice. They debated for the heart and future of the country, and Lincoln lost. In his career, he lost and lost and lost. In 1858, he lost, even though virtually every point he made in his speeches proved true. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Accustomed to trample on the rights of others, you have lost the genius of your own independence. Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves. True, true, true. He won in 1860, but in 1862 his party was thrashed, and he said, it reminds me of the boy who said, I'm too big to cry and too badly hurt to laugh. And in 1863, the horror of Gettysburg quickened his finest address. And in 1864, challenged by his own subordinate, he barely won again. And in 1865, on Good Friday, he was dead. Lincoln spoke of the country he loved in a soaring phrase, the last best hope. I believe that we as a people can, in some measure, live out Lincoln's majestic hope of this land as a last best hope. And I offer, I believe, in continuity with the scripture as read today, two promissory notes. At its worst right now, our culture languishes in the doldrums of a pervasive malaise. We are hungering for an uplifting vision of something good and new. A quickened excitement for the power of forbearance and the peace of a discipline against resentment can help us live out a, fa a faith engaged with culture and help us build a culture amenable to faith. Forbearance, a spiritual discipline against resentment. We may be entering an epoch of forbearance. You will remember something of forbearance, patient restraint, a great power for doing good. Sometimes are, it reminds us it is better to have patience than brains. If we can restrain ourselves here and then into the future, if we can forbear, we shall find that the community of peoples will see in us a glimmer of a last best hope. We may model as a people, as a culture, as cultures, 
a path forward into a time of freedom and diversity and toleration and compromise and peace. And here our guest, welcome sir. Lincoln holds a key for us, a dream and hope of malice toward none. We may also be entering an epoch of spiritual discipline against resentment. Here I simply refer to a great American and a greater historian, Christopher Lash, who wrote, the only way to break the endless cycle of injustice, as Reinhold Niebuhr argued, is nonviolent coercion with its spiritual discipline against resentment. In order to undermine an oppressor's claims to moral superiority, one has to avoid such claims on their own behalf. Again, in the confines of a sermon, I can only sketch. Latch's essay distilled this theme, a spiritual discipline against resentment, from the lives and writings of Niebuhr, Martin Luther King, the Boston personalists, and many others. He saw, as we too may see in the Matthean passage earlier read, the necessity of holding at bay those deeply human sentiments that easily and tragically attach themselves to us when we are fearful, attacked, violated. For a future to emerge that is more than simply a repetition of the patterns of the past, a people, this people, must develop this spiritual discipline against resentment. And if we can model as a people this discipline, others around the globe will find cause to agree with Lincoln's assessment of this land, this country, our country, as a last best hope. Here Lincoln holds a key for us, a dream and a hope of malice toward none. What is this discipline? What does it look like? How is one to find its power? Truly I see no better source than a confessional reliance upon the Christ of Calvary. Truly I see no better reading than the one we heard a moment ago. An epic of forbearance, a spiritual discipline against resentment. I'm not at all sure that I can define these for you, but I can give you an example in life and speech. It was the genius of our visitor, Lincoln, which best bespoke this twin hope, especially in his second inaugural. Within two months of writing and offering these words, he was dead. Yet listen to his wise admonition to forbearance and a discipline against resentment, March 4, 1865, in passing. At this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at first. On the occasion corresponding to this four years ago, all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war. All dreaded it, all sought to avert it. Both parties deprecated war, but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive, 
and the other would accept war rather than let it perish, and the war came. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it had already attained, has already attained. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease or even before, with or even before the conflict itself should cease. Each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us not judge that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And so, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all the nations. Amen.
Friends, we now pause to take time to offer our prayers to God. You may sit, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as according to your tradition. Now, please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord. respond with hear our prayer. Gracious and loving God, we pray for the church universal, ecumenical councils, churches in other places in our own country and abroad, and their leaders, and for us here on Commonwealth Avenue at Marsh Chapel. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the nations and all those in authority that they may make wise decisions based on love and fairness for all people. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for justice and peace in all the world in the midst of war, poverty, and selfishness. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the health of those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit, that you may bring comfort. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the needs of families, single people, and the lonely. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for reconciliation with adversaries so that we may be an example of your love. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for all who are oppressed or in prison. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for our local community in Boston and all other communities so that your healing and gracious presence would shine in the dark places. Merciful God, hear our prayer. And now we join together in saying the prayer that your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. we pause to welcome our guests and visitors. If you are new among us, we're so pleased you've come. Help us to get to know you by using the ritual of friendship, the red pad that will come to you from the center aisle that we also might greet you by name following worship. You are invited, all, one and all, to join us for coffee hour following worship downstairs. We recognize that tomorrow is a holiday, so our office is closed and our regular activities are suspended. With these thoughts and concerns before us, let us continue to worship together by presenting our tithes and offerings. Thank you. 
Gracious and giving God, in light of all the blessings you have showered upon us, we offer these gifts to be used in your service. We only pray that they be used to glorify your name and to heal your people. Grant us prayerful, prayerful, prayerful peace and discerning wisdom so that we may go out today and live our lives with malice toward none and charity for all. Amen. sun show warm and bright on you, your darkest night a star shine through, your dullest morn a radiance brew, and when dusk comes, God's hand to you. Amen.